and that's Joel Guy. And this is Why Unknown Date These Guys, a podcast where we talk about dating, sex, relationships. And occasionally pro-life propaganda. And today we are, I literally didn't even get the bottle. I didn't even get the bottle? It's passion fruit jaritos. Okay. Well, Another of this 12-pack of Mexican sodas that I purchased. This one's a different flavor. Look we'll at the shape know. that the ice is making. It's a like it's like so flat. No, look at mine. Mine's a little flower. Do you see that? Do you see it? Do you see it? I'm drinking my drink. <laughs> you know, in Peru, they have this like thing. It's called a pisco sour, and it's their equivalent of a um, whiskey sour. Because mm-hmm. you know how whiskey sour has like egg in it. But they make it with fresh passion fruit, so it has like the seeds and stuff in it, and it's yeah. the best thing I've ever had in my life, like the best drink I've ever had in my life, and it tastes nothing like that. I <laughs> was at a cocktail bar with Lauren this weekend, yeah. and I had a drink which was served with a piece of passion fruit with passion fruit puree on top, Yeah, and I slurped up that passion fruit puree, and it was incredible, and yeah. this is nothing like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's... It's fruity. It's soda. It's not even that carbonated. It's difficult to call it soda. It's like a soda-y syrup. It's kind of like when you go to a dive bar and you ask for anything with tonic water and they give you this tonic deflated water. Yeah, it's it's it feels like it's been sitting on the shelf for a while. Yeah. Naomi, I want to begin discussing something I stumbled across a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And I have no idea how long this is going to take us to unpack because okay. it's an incredibly long document. But okay, I let me ask you, how long the is the document? I have two questions. How long is the document? Well, well look, can we introduce what it is yeah, first? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, so as someone has probably picked up if you downloaded this episode from the episode title, uh, today we're discussing a quote-unquote leftist zine called A Young Fem Gay Leftist Handed You a Pro-Life Zine, WTF? Question mark. Um, I stumbled across this when the Roe versus Wade decision was first laid down back in July, and it's been kind of living rent-free. June. June? It was June. Oh, God, it's happening. Yeah. Time is a flat circle. Yep. Um, It's been living rent-free in my mind ever since, and it's this compilation of arguments that are allegedly meant to be reasons why someone who identifies as a progressive should actually be pro-life and it's astonishing and it's one of the weirdest things i've encountered and i want to talk a little bit about first like why this is so weird to me and then break down a lot of the arguments within it can i ask you a couple questions you can certainly ask okay first thing is I, I, I'm hoping that the audience wants to know by now because you gave a great introduction. How long is this zine? Zine. Zine. Um, so, Naomi, you've been to protests before. Zine, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly in Minecraft. And you've received zines, like free publications yes. for people. Yes. How long were those? Uh, like, sometimes it's a pamphlet and sometimes it's a couple of pages. They're, the longest one I ever got was allegedly 10 pages-ish. Yeah. Um, but they were, it was small. It often was small. we're talking about like eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper mm-hmm. that are stapled together or like carefully folded in different configurations. I've purchased some before for a couple bucks and those are typically no more than 30. This is 114 pages. Okay. It's a really long document. 
And what this document's kind of doing is the author who, who published this said they were trying to create this like compelling introduction to the like arguments pro-life people were making from a progressive perspective to bring more progressives into the pro-life movement. Um, and I don't know if they succeed in that goal. The rhetoric utilized is suspicious in a couple of different ways. But it's also strange to me that they made something that was this long. Because unless you're really, really interested in what you have to say, 114 pages is a That's lot a to book. get through. It's a book. It's a book. It's That's also not... insanely expensive to print. We'll, we'll get into all this in just a second. But I thought it was really interesting that this like even exists to begin with. And I think on this podcast, we've kind of danced around like our opinions on abortion and all of like the compelling arguments that the pro-life movement makes. And I feel it's worth unpacking this rhetoric because this has like every single argument pro-life people have ever made compiled into a 114 page pamphlet, we'll say. And so this is a really good opportunity to dig into that because allegedly, since we tend to identify as progressives, if this was making good, compelling arguments that appealed to progressives, we might find something like worth defending and understanding in here. I don't think that's the case, but theoretically, that's how it should work, right? Yes. When I first sent this to you, what were, what was your reaction? Um. So usually, when you hear young femme gay leftists, <laughs> you think like, "Oh, that person is on the left." Mm-hmm. Um. You think this person is pro-choice, they um, absolutely will go out of their way to uh, be an ally um, to an individual looking seeking out an abortion. Um, they hate people that are pro-life or are restricting bodily autonomy. Disagree with people that are pro-life. And then just hearing just it's okay. I feel like there is no in the middle of this issue. It's either you're pro-life or you're pro-choice. And there isn't, like, there's two extremes. And there isn't a good midpoint. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying there has to be a midpoint. But this person is, like, taking half of the pro-choice movement and making and dragging it and sludging it through, like, mud and gunk and, like, poop. And taking it to the right. And that's just how I felt. Interesting. So I think this is like written by someone who's very, very pro-life, who is using the title gay femme leftist as kind of a credentialism. Okay. Like normally someone who, you're right, is gay, femme, identifies as a leftist, would be pro-choice. Yeah. And so by attempting to package your arguments in that way, you're trying to skip past people who are skeptical of this and be like, well, if I believe all these things, maybe you can believe them too. Yeah. So it's kind of an appeal to authority in that way. It's trying to bridge a gap by tying to progressive general embrace of gay individuals and fellow progressives. Um, I think a lot of progressive people are at the point where they recognize that infighting in the progressive movement is really bad. And destructive and so uh they may be open and receptive to diverse ideas in the women's movement i also think this is kind of an intellectual exercise unpacking all of this i think people who are new to progressive politics and new to the idea that oh women don't 
always have rights in America anymore, um, might latch onto and see value in these arguments. And I want to combat them before they reach kind of the mainstream. I have no idea how successful this pamphlet has been at reaching people. It doesn't look like it's gained a lot of traction on Twitter, but that doesn't mean it won't. And I can see other people taking inspiration from this and trying to repackage the ideas in a more accessible form. And and recently, in the last couple of weeks, uh, we're recording this at the beginning of August, um, I'm seeing a weird amount of, like, self-identified lesbians who are just actively denigrating the trans community or self-identified, like, Marxists or communists who just arbitrarily hate non-binary and trans people because they think they undermine the legitimacy of their movements. You're saying you found this on Twitter? Yeah, I'm seeing this a lot online. Like, in England now, there's a whole group called the LGB Alliance, which is only lesbians, gays, and bisexuals who hate trans people. Oh my god, I heard about this movement off of Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, really? Yes, because they interviewed someone, this was years ago, they interviewed someone that was an LGB ally, or an activist, an Mm -hmm. activist, and they were like, oh, so isn't there extra letters in that? She's like, no. No, I don't believe in trans people. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And then she went on like a whole rant about it. Yeah, and I think J.K. Rowling, who we've discussed on this podcast, definitely subscribes to that kind of ideology. So already you're kind of seeing different members of like the progressive movement or people who pretend to be progressive trying to undermine these alliances that have been formed. And so again, I think it's worth combating it. Um, I, I think... There's a genuine possibility this is astroturfing by a pro-life group trying to pass their ideas off as progressive, but I think also there's a lack of education about abortion issues, and so it's important, even if this is astroturfing, to address this in the community. So before we get into the arguments, I want to talk about like how it was packaged and why this is like really weird for allegedly being a zine. Um, and then we can just start discussing it. Uh, we'll include a link to the document in um, the description of this episode. We have no idea how long this is going to take because I have 22 pages of notes for the first 13 pages of a 114-page uh, document. There is so much to unpack. You here. can tell he went to a liberal arts school when. Fair enough. <laughs> Damn, you really got me. So are you ready? Yeah, and this was in fucking 11-point font. What the fuck do you have to talk about? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know how to write essays. Uh, okay, so uh, the opening says, uh, quote, a young femme gay leftist has just presented you with this zine, or perhaps one of her comrades did, or someone who wants to mock her did. Regardless, somehow you got access to this, and now you're wondering, why the fuck are you looking at a pro-life zine? This isn't just any pro-life scene. This is a progressive, feminist scene. It's an anthology of facts, quotes, and ideas from a variety of sources, including some pro-choice ones. The goal of this scene is to debunk false facts, center diverse women's voices, and pull on common threads between progressive ideology and consistent life ethic. Only open-minded people will read to the end. Are you up for the challenge? No. This is the end of the episode right here. (laughs) <laughs> that would be very fun. We need to have an April Fool's episode where we confront some like horrible, shitty piece of writing, like Steve Harvey's Think Like a Manor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Yeah, we need to just give up halfway through rather than actually embracing its ideas. But you can understand, like, this is written in a way to appeal to people who are like, I'm open-minded. I'm willing to, like, identify with hard concepts. It, it's deliberately provoking them. And I think this is a really calming tactic of conservatives. Um and you'll you'll hear this often. People will be like, you know, the rhetoric coming out of this group is kind of vaguely Nazi-esque. 
And they'll say, well, that's just because you haven't listened to 200 hours of Joe Rogan or read all of Jordan Peterson's books where he like develops these ideas, makes them more compelling. It's a way of preventing you from criticizing or engaging with the sensual conceits of a piece of media. It's a way of gatekeeping and saying you can only critique if you're this smart, right? It's like a ride at the amusement park. And it forces you to take the effort to engage in order to meet some arbitrary, you know, line that they've created, that they've delineated. And it's, it's an effective way of framing the debate. It's kind of a challenge being like, if you were really smart, you'd understand it. But it's also not an intellectually honest one in my mind. So if the intro that this author has is true, the abortion conversation tends to circulate false information, exclude diverse perspectives, and ignore how progressive politics and pro-life policies can coexist. So this allegedly should display the facts and evidence for that in a, you know, strong, structured, reasoned way. The way it's all set up, though, is very strange. Okay, so here's the first thing. We've talked about zines at protests and how yes. they're, like, slapped together, black and white, printed on 8.5 by 11 paper. That we have allegedly been yeah. to and received. That's that's just implied, Neely, moving forward. So I get zines at local protests. They're, you know, folded up awkwardly. They're done in, you know, someone's home printer, which was, you know, built in 1990. Uh, they're, they're poor quality. What printers do you have your hands on? These are other people, <laughs> Naomi. We, of course, have only access to the highest printer material. So standard paper sizing is 8.5 by 11 or 1.29 to 1. You can fold it in half to get a 4.25 times 11 or 8.5 by 6.5 to make a 2.59 to 1 or a 1.31 to 1 ratio. These are American units for international listeners. These are like standard paper sizes. So this is a ratio of 0.56 or 1.78 to 1. That's the format of this, right? That's how the author chose to set this up as a digital file, which doesn't match any standard paper size I can find. Uh, someone who's really familiar with like A16 paper, let me know that, you know, I'm just completely off base. But you can't print this without spending hours cutting paper properly to size or spending a bunch of money to get a professional print shop to make it for you. So the evidence that this was done to only be shared digitally seems pretty compelling. But also it would seem that someone who's not actually familiar with how zines work got this printed or created this, right? Right. Okay. You can push back or you disagree. No, I just, I'm trying to imagine what that paper size, like I'm trying to imagine the, the contortions of that paper size in my mind and I'm not coming up with anything. It's like a like, mathematical origami equation. It's no, very like, a, like, you know, the legal size sheets you can mm -hmm. print off of. It's like that, but like longer. That's right. Yeah, it's strange. So the length is also off. 114 pages is a manifesto, not a zine. It's like the communist manifesto. It's, it's very long. It requires consciously engaging with a text for an extended length of time. But also, it was a huge amount of work just writing the copy and gathering all the resources for this. It was a lot of work gathering sources and disputing a lot of claims that other people make. Either someone has been working on this for a while or multiple people contributed which again would seemingly imply that this was an organized effort by an outside group. But who's to say? Some people have a lot of free time. Another thing that's weird is the colors are off. Um, so, Naomi, when you're printing at ASU, do you typically print documents in black and white or color? I don't print at ASU because they don't fucking take my microbiology notes that I need to print all summer, so I had to go to Office Max and Xerox the fuck out of them. Um, so when I am printing, I print in color because when you're taking microbiology, you need to ensure that you can see all the little speckles and spicks. That's totally fair. In color. 
the the specs. That's a, I don't want to say that the speckles. That's an important <laughs> part of the cell for biology. Um, my question to you is this: Which yeah. is more expensive, black and white printing or color printing? Um, color printing. And how much more expensive? Three to four times as expensive as uh, black and white. Sometimes as much as six times more expensive. Okay. Um, so I'd say five or six. Times. This has a crazy amount of colors. It has photos. It has bright colored text. It has all these like custom graphics that look like they were done like a marker and different programs. They're, they're nice graphics, but like they were not done with cheapness in mind. This was not done with reproduction in mind. Never underestimate the quality of somebody with an iPad Pro that has the iPad pen mm-hmm. and how much they can get done on one of those. Well, again, I'm saying they designed this without thinking how it would actually yeah. be printed and produced. So I estimated at our local office max, it would be 12 cents a page to print color. Even assuming that it's double-sided, which it, it isn't, it would be $6.84 to print a single copy of this. Not even assuming that you're chopping it down to the proper aspect ratio. That's on eight and a half by 11 papers. You have this awkward white margin. No, color Office Max is 62 cents. Is it 62 cents a page? It's 62 cents a page. Disregard my equations. It's approximately six times as much as I just said. Uh, So yeah, it's it's pretty gosh darn expensive. But wait, Naomi, you say. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just fit multiple pages onto a single page and print it like that? Because it's a weird size. Because the text size is off. You has to be printed on full-size paper or you can't actually read it. And if you look at the digital file, you'll realize this pretty quickly. Not only is there this wide range of like fonts and uh, font sizes and, and strange loops and whirls and graphics that interfere with how easily you can read the text, there's also stuff that's printed in incredibly small font on dark backgrounds. So even in the digital file, I often had to zoom in in order to like figure out what was actually being said. Even worse, I couldn't actually figure out what several of these pages said. So I had to convert this entire document to a PDF file or download it as a PDF file and then convert that to a Word document, Mm -hmm. which messed up a huge amount of the graphics, but I was able to get like actual text out of it. Mm -hmm. So again, this is not designed for readability or printing, which makes it seem like the author is, again, completely unfamiliar with zines or didn't factor that in at all when they were designing it. The way that you're describing this author, I'm just imagining this like crazy, super cynical individual sitting behind a computer late at night, just typing away furiously, being like, ha ha ha, they're never going to be able to print it cheaply. (laughs) And just continuing, just like, look at this weird graphic. It's going to be so hard to print. I'm picturing like a female version of like, Irreditor from 2012 who like spends a lot of time on our atheism and is okay. obsessed with logic and reason like oh rationalize their way into believing pro-life positions I was imagining more of like the scarecrow from the Batman movies and their <laughs> uh, young gay femme Naomi sorry scarecrow could have been queer coded in the yes. Batman Begins film that's what I believe and oh. I will say by that statement <laughs> okay so getting into the actual content which is what everyone's here for we're only what 15 minutes in oh god yeah <laughs> So pages two and three are the first thing you see when you open it up. And page two has no joke, like 50 arguments that are allegedly about why you should be 
progressive and pro-life. Mm -hmm. It's this incredible amount of text crammed into the page. It's so much text that I couldn't just take a screenshot of it and put it on the page. I had to break this apart into six separate sections to talk about each of them individually in the Word document. Again, if you're following along at home, download or at least access the link that's in the episode description and take a look at this. This is so hard to parse. And again, because of how they wrote out this, it's difficult to even read some of the text in each of these sections. But I digress. So the first section has four arguments. Um, or I don't even know if you call them arguments. I'm treating them as like full claim warrant impact when they're often not more than one of those. You can sort of see what they're saying, and I'm really giving the author a lot of credence here. I'm trying to assume the best that this is a fully realized argument. Maybe that's being way too generous. So there's four statements here. In a society that values, quote-unquote, your kind, dead or alive, parenting is revolutionary. Abortion decimates, quote-unquote, undesirable communities. Abortion is a flesh tax on the poor. And we said economic options, and you heard life-or-death choices. Naomi, do any of those stand out to you? Abortion is a flesh tax on the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, we said economic options, you heard life-or-death choices. Right. Do all of them stand out to me? They're all very crazy statements to make. They're interesting statements to make. Uh, so for the first one, parenting is revolutionary. I had a couple of responses. Um, I think the most basic one is the act of parenting can be a revolutionary or an act of defiance against the state and still not be for everyone. It's giving me very much the argument, why would you get an abortion? Your child could be the one that cures cancer. Oh my God, you're right. I'm thinking it's more of like society discourages people from being parents. You should like take the opportunity and raise, you know, someone who cares about the world properly, an environmentalist. A white nationalist. Well, we're progressives, Naomi. We oh, don't generally right. support that. Sorry. So like parenting can be revolutionary, it can be an act of defiance, and it can still be something that's not for everyone. Like just like end of story. Yeah. Um, but also the act of having children is not the same as parenting. Often that pro-life people true. like conflate the two, but just because you've squeezed out an infant does not mean you're going to be a good parent, nor does it mean you have like the aptitude to be a good parent. So I don't think we should conflate pro-life and parenting, um, even if they consider them the same thing. And then like just my general perception is that society actively discourages people from being infertile, from being non-parents. Uh, society tends to tell women that they're best off when they're breeding. Yep. And when they're contributing, you know, children to the economic pool, um, I'd love to see what actual polling says. But yeah, at least the message I've gotten from my parents and the message my friends say that they get from their parents is they expect grandchildren, not we are perfectly fine, 100 percent, no issues if you decide not to. I didn't have anything to say. I so I, I guess did. the point I'm trying to make is I don't think there's actually a societal push to not be a parent. Right. So I don't know how having a child would, in fact, be revolutionary if that's the status quo. I'm, I keep going back to I keep every time you say parenting is revolutionary, I just think of your child could be the one that cures cancer. <laughs> Fair enough. So the second argument is abortion decimates undesirable communities. And hey, if you identify progressive politics, you probably don't want minority communities to like be decimated. That seems like a bad thing. Well, the existence of large groups of minorities does not mean they have rights or social statuses, right? Like, African-American and Hispanic individuals comprise 
almost 50% of the United States population. And we're not going to go about pretending that like African-Americans and Hispanics have equal rights and, you know, have not been subjected to horrible tyranny throughout American history. Like just because a large group exists does not mean they magically have the ability to, you know, gain respect and rights. So I don't know why we're saying that we need to expand large groups. Um, Second, I, I really don't want to dig into this, but overpopulation is an issue. That's not to say we need to decide which groups like inherently deserve to live and die. There's definitely a element of overpopulation, which is kind of fascist in that it says we need to get rid of, you know, large groups of the third world. But like overpopulation is something you can genuinely be concerned by and decide not to have children. And that doesn't mean that you're like not fulfilling your duty to a minority group. Um, I think minority groups can also find greater empowerment if they have financial independence and the ability to pursue careers and positions of power. I don't think that, again, magically having children is going to give them equality before the law. And finally, I think minority groups also have the ability to make choices for themselves. It seems just a little bit racist to assume minorities didn't choose willingly the act of having an abortion. They're going to dig into this more later, and I find some of their arguments later in this text to be a little more nuanced, and we'll discuss them then. But this one definitely seems very weak. Does that all seem fair? Yeah. Naomi's looking horrified and bored. No, Bortified. I'm just... I'm bortified, mm-hmm. is what you said? No, I just, like, there's so many, like... It just puts me in awe the statements that are being made. Not by <laughs> you, but by this, this, this young femme gay leftist. And I'm just, like, realizing that you can't claim that you're a leftist if you're making these statements. Well, we have to go 114 pages before we can conclude that, Naomi. Okay. These are the best and brightest I'm just going to be one of those people that just won't make it the 114 pages. Fair enough. So the third statement is abortion is a flesh tax on the poor. Naomi, what's a flesh tax? Um, I'm assuming that it has to deal with flesh and it's a tax on the flesh and i'm assuming that they're relating it to the fact that a lot of the right thinks that when you have an abortion a late-term abortion or an early-term abortion that you're literally like just taking the flesh but it's literally just a chromosome cells what is a flesh tax i don't know because i, I looked this up okay and the only reference I can find is in the D&D wiki online oh that talks about a flesh tax which reinstituted slavery, some obscure part of, like, D&D lore. Okay, young femme gay leftist, you have re- taken back your leftist title by playing D&D. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Uh, yeah, it's... A very violent term, I think it's used for, like, more of the emotional impact, not necessarily any actual, like, substance to the argument. Um, I think if you want to talk about how, like, abortion impacts poor communities, you can just generally say our society doesn't treat poor people well. That's kind of a given. Um, The argument, however, is non-unique and would apply until you got rid of all class systems whatsoever. Like, it doesn't mean that abortion is bad. It means every social structure we have in our society is bad, which is, okay, a position progressives might agree with. Um, I think also if we want to talk about taxes, the poor are probably taxed more while being forced to raise kids they don't want. Um, I think if they made the decision to try to not have a, a pregnancy and they were forced to have that pregnancy, that's probably going to have greater financial impact on their life than the, the ability to make choices because they know how much money and resources they actually possess. What was that game that we played online? I don't know if you ever played it online when you were younger where 
um, you were given a set of circumstances and you could pick like route A or route B or route C and you could see how long it took for you to um, like lose all your money or... I don't remember this. Okay, so basically it's it's like the game of life, but like more accurate to 2022 um, because you're Yeah, I don't given, think we played that when we were younger in 2022. No, 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 no. It, it's been around for a number of years, but it, it's definitely more relevant now. Um, you're given a set amount of money at the beginning of the game, and then throughout the game, you're given certain circumstances. So you pick where to live, you pick, uh, and like how far it is from your work, and you pick where you're going to work, and then you're thrown all these curveballs. So it's like, oh, your kid just broke a window in your apartment. Your landlord wants you to fix it. It's going to be $150. Your utilities are um, due. Do you want to live without power for a couple of days, even though it's the dead of winter? Are you going to pay the $300? Um, oh, it's payday, but look, you have to pay the insurance. Um, it's like all these circumstances that are very real life circumstances, but it's like you have to see how far you can get without losing all of your money because mm-hmm. then you'll like die. If you could find that, we'll put that in the episode description. Got it. Okay. I, yeah, I just don't remember what it was. The final statement here, and this is, again, the first row of six on the first main page in the document. We said economic options. You heard life or death choices. So the statement seems to be saying people asked for options in our brutal economy, and what people internalized was we'll force people to have abortions. Um, well, it assumes fetuses are alive by default, which a lot of people don't predispose. They do go into a lot more detail later in the text, talking about what actually qualifies for life. But just as a general argument, it doesn't seem fair to say people are thinking of this in life and death when a lot of people don't to begin with. Uh, forced pregnancy is also life and death for many women. I'll dig into this a little bit later, but yes, pregnancy has major health repercussions for a lot of women. Uh, turns out not all women are designed to squeeze babies out. And it can be a very harrowing process, even if they do survive. And then the final thing is um, abortion exists in all societies, even those throughout history which did not have highly developed class systems. So it's hard to say that like economic circumstances are forcing people into these situations when people who did not necessarily have the economic incentive to get an abortion also made that decision. The game is called Spent. Thank you, Naomi. (laughs) We'll drop a link. Row two. I'm not even going to read them at first. I'm just going to do them one by one. I think that's easier. I think that your last statement made about the first row, which is talking about how abortion... uh, No, no, no. Your second to last. Flesh tax. Yeah. This directly relates to your next statement about abortion grants. Politicians like... Okay. Want to read that? (laughs) Okay. Let's read the four statements. Uh, Uh, Just read them one at a time so we can... Abortion grants politicians the right to construe women's bodies as economic objects. So I'm unclear what the heck that even means. Like, does that mean politicians have the ability and the status quo to make unilateral decisions over economic objects in their country? Yes. Well, I would say the government has pretty clear restrictions on not, like, taking control of private property and resources. That's not to say that, like, other countries might not, but the government, for the most part, doesn't, like walk over to Google and say, Google, make more search results. It doesn't like tell companies how to utilize what they do just because things are economic objects. They don't have that power. A couple of days um, before the um, Roe v. Wade decision was made, the Supreme Court decided on a um, 
they they made a decision that would effectively ensure that if you're with a hundred miles of the border, the southern border of the United States, and you were under and police thought that you were think that you're under suspicion of um, trafficking or having illegal immigrants in your car, they can um, search your car without a warrant. So it's illegal search and seizure on private property. Interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, but keep in mind, anyway, it's not 100 miles from the southern border. It's 100 miles from any border, and that includes points of entry like international airports. I was... Okay, sorry. Yeah, uh, it turns out you've less rights than you thought you had. I'm sorry. I wow. All the way around the borders. Yeah. I'd also reverse this argument that, like, having no control over your production of endless babies make women's bodies economic objects because they're a cheap source of future labor, right? Like... A politician wants their economy to be healthy for their constituents, and economies thrive on resources and labor. So if you don't have children in your economy, you would be incentivized to produce more. And if politicians have the ability to prevent women from sterilizing themselves or prevent women from terminating pregnancies, that's economic control. Okay. We're going to cut a lot of Naomi's unhappy pauses out. No, I just, I have an issue with this because you're talking about like economic objects and like, yes, women are economic objects. And you can see that because the forced sterilization of many women in prison in the United States. Is that economic per se or just not treating them as human? (laughs) They're objects and you're doing it for economic reasons. Is the economic reason to not support a child in jail? Yes. Okay. I'll buy that. Yeah. Okay, so the second statement is you can't reform violence out of a violent industry. You should, excuse me, abolish big abortion. I had never heard the term big abortion before this. Um, Also, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, So I guess they're saying that any acts against a fetus count as violent, which doesn't seem right. There's no real bright line. There's no real standard for what, like, constitutes violence here. Um, I think there's many procedures you could perform upon a fetus or an infant that might constitute violence under this framework without killing it. I'm not completely certain. Uh, Lots of medical professionals also hurt women and don't care about their pain. This is a really, really, really big issue in medicine where male doctors consistently underestimate how much pain women are in and refuse to prescribe them prescription medicine. So under this logic, you should abolish big hospital Uh, because pain is produced in hospitals and the whole industry seems resilient to change. Uh, Maybe that's taking a little too far, but you can understand how the object, the the logic here is very similar. Um, And then I guess the question is small abortion would still be allowed then. If the problem is like an industry, uh, then you should still support your like local independent granola farm that also offers abortions. They give you a tea mixture and just wait it out in a sweat lodge with you. Yeah, I'm thinking like you go for some peach picking, have your abortion. uh, They feed you like, you know, some some fresh vegetables. Are you there for like a 48 hour period? Like this is this. I'm thinking like a Schneff Farms thing. It's very much like an immersion or like a wolf program. I definitely think that Schneff is a conservative. I'm saying akin to (laughs) the experience you might have there. Uh, The third statement here is when does a man have to choose his future or... Oh, over his child's life. Um, This is an interesting question. Uh, They're saying only women uniquely have this choice to make. Um, I think it's worth emphasizing that some women are able to have successful careers, even as a mother. Uh, It doesn't mean you're, like, resigning yourself to helplessness and servitude just because you've had a child. Um, Some women want a career and financial independence over a child. Again, some women want, you know, fame and fortune, and it seems 
annoying to say that they can't pursue that and only men can. Um, and then if women having children threatens their economic livelihood, maybe improve social conditions, that doesn't mean force women to give birth to babies they don't want. And the authors seem pretty consistent in the idea that they think women's social situations should be improved, but that doesn't magically mean that this argument is right. It means that social conditions should be improved. Last argument here is, uh, God, this is difficult to read because using two different sizes of font and two different colors of font in this statement. Abortions enable mass class violence, so we should ban them. Would you agree with that statement, Naomi? Um, I think that for me, if I were to get rid of, you know, firearms, that would cause a lot less deaths in the classroom and that there's no abortions <laughs> that are in classrooms. So I feel like if you just take out the common, I, I think you're talking about like social or racial class violence. Oh, Nemi's making a joke guys. That was a joke. <laughs> um, I just automatically assume we're talking firearms. <laughs> we're talking about classrooms. We're talking about children and guns. Yeah. Unfortunately that's where the mind wanders. So the argument here seems to be if abortion exists, this allows large members of the majority to inflict quote unquote violence upon groups that are smaller. Um, so the first thing is women are usually not forced at gunpoint to have abortions. They have to struggle to find someone to perform them and not be harmed by protesters or a partner when doing so. Right. It's not that abortions enable mass class violence. It's the lack of abortions enables mass class violence and violence against women. Uh, forced birth enables partners to control women and keep them subjected. Uh, I would also argue that is, crazy violence. I don't know if that's violence against a specific class, but it definitely means that members of a class who have less access to abortions would probably have more violence against them. Uh, and then finally, having children makes it harder to perform revolutionary acts. If you're afraid of harming your family, it seems harder to fight for the future, right? Like, I, I don't think people can fight for the needs of their class in an economic lens if, say, you know, you're fighting for the rights of the poor, the rights of a minority racial group, if you have a number of children. And I'm not saying that just because you have children doesn't mean you can't fight for those things. I'm saying if you care about these issues, it's much easier to fight when you don't have, you know, family ties that can be exploited. So I, I see where they're coming from, but the argument seems far more nuanced than they're giving it credit for. Row three. Boy, we're really moving, Naomi. I promise other pages go much faster than this, but there is just so much to dig through. I want to read it. Go for it. Hold men accountable mandatory child support from day one. This is interesting. What do you think about mandatory child support from day one? Yes or no? I would say you're talking about men that walk out on, yes. on women. Okay. Um, or people that provide the sperm walking out on people that provide the, the cervix. We're, we're using women as a term of art. Like okay. We, we definitely mean people with uteruses. We um, are understanding. I would say yes. Um, I do agree with this. I slightly disagree. Okay. Um, there's been a big push recently to legislate, create laws that force men who, individuals who provide the, the semen to a, 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 a child to have to pay. And one of the big groups pushing for it is insurance and financial lobbies because it means they can extract money and payments from men when formerly they might not have been able to. And there's now a legal mechanism to hold men accountable, which means they can be forced to pay debts. So that's a little scary. That's not a reason necessarily to oppose it. Uh, the big concern here is it gives men more of a reason to kill their partners. If a man doesn't want to have a child, 
and he knows that he's impregnated someone, and he knows that he's going to be held accountable for child support, not only is there now a potential baby in the future, there's also half or more of his income going towards that child the rest of his life. So who is responsible? Who should, who should help the mother in the instance that there is no mandatory child support? Uh, well, the argument this text seems to make in the rest of the pamphlet is we need far better support for mothers to raise children. Okay. And society should provide far more support so that children do not go hungry or there's a lack of resources that prevents them from getting proper education or what they need to thrive. So, uh, look, I'm not saying it's as easy as that. I definitely think in most cases men should be expected to contribute if they decide to walk out after they've impregnated someone, but I don't think mandatory child support is necessarily the way. I think it's going to lead to, unfortunately, more murders. Um, I also think day one is interesting. Does that mean day one of the birth? Because the graphic here shows a sperm entering an egg, and that would imply that a fetus immediately becomes a baby nine months before a baby pops out of a womb. Yes. Right? That seems a little strange. That opens up all these weird aspects of law that are now being pursued, like can you drive in the HOV lane if you're yeah. uh, pregnant? Um, you know, can you get uh, additional child support from the government if you've just been impregnated? Uh, do you get, you know, a, a deduction on your taxes for raising additional children? Yeah, there's if all sorts of If you kill a pregnant person while in a, in a, if you kill a pregnant person in a um, car accident, is it double homicide? It, and these are, you know, questions that are going to be litigated as, you know, states continue to have different standards. Nami, what's the second statement? Both are patients. Universal health care now. And the graphic shows a woman and a fetus inside the woman. And a little little heart monitor. And arrows pointing to the mother and the fetus. Yeah. Um, universal health care is good. I don't think we're going to disagree on this. Yep. I don't think that means women should be forced to have children. And I think we can say women should have the support they need to make informed decisions about whether or not they want to terminate a pregnancy. And universal health care would help with that. Yay! Yay. Statement three. Keep your ideology off their biology. But Naomi, there's something underneath that. Can you read what that says? Keep your rosaries off my ovaries. Yeah, so are you familiar with the phrase, keep your rosaries off my ovaries? Yes, I am, because it's on a lot of signs that I see allegedly at protests. Um, yeah, so for those who aren't as well informed, basically it's saying uh, keep your religious practices, your rosaries, off of my biology, my, 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 my genital region. I don't want your religious practices influencing the decisions I could make with my reproductive health care. Um, and then the response to this is this new sexy phrase, keep your ideology off their biology. Um, okay, so we won't ban women who want to have kids if you allow women who don't want to have kids to abort. That seems to be fair. That does seem to be fair. Great. Uh, or are they saying that any entity with biological characteristics deserves protection? Because that seems a little far-fetched. Uh, I would... feel like with this, mm -hmm. it has to be the far-fetched answer. Oh, okay. Um, because then you're defending stuff like cancer cells. Yeah. Which have very similar characteristics to, you know, a fetus and how you define life as we get into later. Uh, Naomi, what's the fourth one? Keep prenatal development safe and legal. Uh, and that's uh, a playoff of keep abortion safe and legal. They crossed it out and put prenatal development I don't think anyone's saying that prenatal development is going to be illegal 
right? You don't have people from Planned Parenthood going out and burning down maternity wards. I don't know about you, but that's what I do in my internship. Oh, okay. Yeah, the only thing being made illegal under, like, these frameworks is options for women. Um, It doesn't mean that prenatal development is being banned. Uh, Women may be less likely to have children, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's suddenly illegal. It's very much a stretch to phrase it that way. Next one, Naomi. Your ability is not worth, is not your worth. Guarantee basic income. So this one is fun because what does the graphic show? It shows an individual in a wheelchair and a fetus uh, connected to a umbilical cord. See, and this is where I was reading it and went, oh, this is going to like actually resonate with people because they're like, oh, hey, if you actually believe in disability rights, you should support fetuses, which frankly is kind of offensive comparing someone in a wheelchair to a fetus which can't do anything. That's extremely offensive. Yeah, like... That, that's not to say there aren't disabled people who need, like, constant round-the-clock care 24-7, but I think the vast majority of disabled people constantly fight to be just treated as human, and comparing their abilities to fetuses seems really degrading and inaccurate. It's like you've never interacted with disabled people. That's ableist. It's, it's yeah, this, this alleged progressive seems a little ableist. That's crazy. Um, also, like, I'm not really arguing with the statement, your ability is not your worth. I'm more of arguing with how they're applying it. Like, great, single women and women should babies should get some support. Um, I'm not here to stand in the way of that. I just don't want that to be weaponized. What's the next statement, Naomi? And eviction shelter is a human right. And then there's a little, there's a woman looking very sad down at a baby in her womb and the baby is under a little housing structure in her womb and the woman is also under a housing structure. So the woman is under a structure, but the baby is also under a structure in the womb. Oh, it's like poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> uh, again, this is really weaponizing progressive rhetoric because I think a lot of people who identify as progressive are critical of our housing industry the way rents keep going up, and the way homeless people are treated. And you have progressives currently fighting stuff like in Los Angeles, where city council has just voted for a proposition that would ban outdoor camping in approximately one quarter of all the area of the city, right? And that's definitely going to be utilized against homeless people. And already you can like go on The Guardian and different United Kingdom news, uh, newspapers, which even if they're super conservative, they're still covering stories about homeless people in Los Angeles who are forced to live in the middle of the desert because they keep getting brutally beaten by police officers when they attempt to live in the valley. That, like it's horrifying. And they, the police officers will forcefully take all of their life belongings and put them in the dumpster and they will never see their belongings ever again. So everything that you know, everything that you find comfortable is taken away from you and you're br- brutally beaten. Yeah. So it's a really bad metaphor that seems like they don't understand what shelter is, a human right, like the phrase shelter is a human right actually refers to. Uh, Let's dig into that metaphor. So there's a baby in a house in a woman's stomach. So should the baby never leave? Like, should the baby never be kicked out? Like, I would imagine... Because that's their shelter, Joel. I would imagine a baby should leave after nine months, right? This idea (laughs) that that you can't evict a baby is a very tortured interpretation here. I get you're saying that babies shouldn't be forcibly evicted, like, through a termination of a pregnancy, but even people living in cheap housing leave their houses sometimes. It's very tortured. 
But then the last thing is no one is forcing women to have pregnancies in a world where abortion exists and progressives abort shit like forced sterilization of ethnic groups or testing in prisons. So we're not, again, holding a gun to somebody's head and saying, evict your baby. Um, th- 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 we're not applying force to people who willingly are wanting to have children. That's, that's just not what exists. Uh, what's the next one, Naomi? If my prenate were, were a corporation, would you grant them legal personhood? I can't read what's on yeah. the Yeah, <laughs> so again, this is one where they've crossed out some text and drawn over it to, with their new phrase. So the original phrase was, if my uterus was a corporation, would you deregulate it? And their new one is, should my prenate get legal personhood as a corporation? Right? If my prenate were a corporation, would you grant them legal personhood? Um, probably not. Because corporations shouldn't be people. <laughs> I, I don't know where they're operating from, but I think most progressives would agree corporations should not have legal personhood. Uh, corporations should exist as wholly distinct entities that do not have the same rights to free speech or donating to politicians that individual persons do. Um, and if they do have the rights of personhood, we should use those rights to do things like execute corporations on occasion. If you have a horrible company like Halliburton or Enron that's just perpetuated so many crimes against like humanity, you should probably have the right to destroy that corporation and never again allow it to exist. So, uh, again, I think they've tried to come up with a clever phrase and not realize the implications of the metaphor. Um, but we're going to see more of that. What's the last one on this row, Naomi? Recognize their rights. And then it's covering up ban- bans off bodies. Boy, that's really good. Yeah, so the original phrase is bans off you know, my body, and this one is like, hey, what's a good way to play off that? Recognize fetus rights. And there's a little picture of a fetus. Um, again, we'll dig into this later, but this is really presupposing a lot about um, the the legal personhood of fetuses and whether or not they should have the right to, you know, give billions of dollars in political campaigns or whatever we're talking about here. The next one is very juicy and I really want to dig into it. Read it for me, Naomi. Violence committed within a woman is a violation of her body. No fucking shit. (laughs) Oh, I disagree with that. I'm talking about, um, I'm not talking about the way that you think that the, the way that they're talking about it. I'm talking about it in like a rape kind of way. Mm hmm. Um, well, that's not how they're talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're using language that someone who's against sexual assault might approve of, but the way they're applying it is probably not something most people would agree with. No, because what they're doing is they're taking, it's exactly what you're mentioning. Like they're taking these, they're, they're using similar wordage. So like, you'd be like, oh yeah, I kind of agree with that. But then they're, you, in, you the way you, you, they're interpreting it is completely different than the way that you would interpret it. Yeah. So this presupposes that fetuses are identical to humans in every way and that if you do anything to a fetus, it's quote-unquote violence. If you terminate a pregnancy, it's quote-unquote violence. It raises the question if all surgery is violence, if you're snipping and tearing and ripping inside a body, if that's violence or we're literally just talking about acts committed on a fetus. Um, I would also argue that abortions aren't all quote-unquote violent even within this framework. Like, if a pregnancy isn't viable and will actively kill a woman, it's not violence per se. It's an act of self-defense to remove that non-viable fetus, which will eventually end up killing her. Um, And then, if someone wants something done to them, is that act a form of violence? 
Some people perceive that as self-harm, but in the case of this, if they're willingly consenting to it and they're ensuring that somebody else is who is knows how to do it or, yeah. you know, has any form of... They have looked up a YouTube tutorial, has um, done it before, or... Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, now this makes I more, don't consider that self-harm. This makes more sense if you think of, like, a woman as a street corner and the baby's, like, an individual hanging out within that street corner got sucker punched by an abortion doctor. Right? They're saying that a fetus yeah. is a separate entity. Okay. The problem is they're also saying violence committed within a woman is a violation of her body. So it's saying that violence is inflicted okay. upon her yeah. body, so the fetus is a part of her body. Yeah. So it's one or the other, and it doesn't make sense in either case. It's fun. Uh, what's the next one, Naomi? If I wanted the government in my uterus, I'd fuck up. <laughs> With Saint, okay, let me restart. Because the original um, that they're covering up is if I wanted government in my if i wanted the government in my uterus i'd fuck a senator but the one that what they're covering it up with is if i wanted the government in my uterus i'd fuck with sanction state sanctioned violence against objectively, objectively alive, alive humans. humans in it there's no t in there that's why i was objectively thinking. alive Naomi. you can't possibly argue there's no subjectivity whatsoever about assessing whether or not fetuses are humans. I just really wish that they still taught science in schools. Yeah, they cut that with art. Yeah. It's now just God hour. The analogy doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because in most cases the government doesn't allow abortions. Um, The only violence is punishing women for abortions, not facilitating them. So it's saying if I wanted the government to have control over my uterus i'd utilize state-sanctioned violence over my uterus but it's not state-sanctioned violence against the uterus it's state-sanctioned violence to prevent anything from happening to your uterus again they're they're living in this world where there's like stormtroopers coming from the U.S. Capitol, like, forcing women at, like, blaster point to, like, abort their babies in the middle of, like, grocery stores and just as they're driving down the street, abort your baby, abort your baby. Um, it, this is, like, a horror movie concept but is being, like, treated as just factual reality that we live in. I don't know what you do with your spare time, but I actually do walk down the street and tell pregnant women to abort their children. This is like a Jordan Peele film. This is Jordan Peele's <laughs> next film after Nope. Um, what's the next one, Naomi, number three? Women don't need a medical procedure to become equal to men. What does that mean to you, Naomi? Um, I mean, that's giving me very transphobic vibes. Ooh, interesting. Um, it could also be perceived as very... Pro-trans individuals. Ooh, interesting. So I know that they're not. <laughs> so like I'm going to take it as like anti. But um, yeah, I don't think that... When you're talking about the feminist movement, it... <laughs> oh, you have so much to unpack here. I have so much to unpack here. <laughs> I'm just going to keep it short and simple. When you're talking about the feminist movement, the basis of the feminist movement is to ensure that women are equal to men or like to move towards equity in society. But what they're trying to say is that women feel the need to be equal to men via having abortions and not being 
and not being able to be pregnant. That's how I'm perceiving how, how I'm perceiving it. There's obviously probably not how they're perceiving it, mm-hmm. but I would say that the vast majority of my argument of why I am pro-choice is because I don't think that women should be incubators for men's sperm. Damn. How are this you? This podcast perceiving? is ending. Uh, so again, this isn't really an argument. It's a statement. It's, I guess, a claim without an impact. There's a lot you have to assume if you have like progressive positions. What they're trying to say. I think what they're trying to say is, in order to achieve equality in society, women need to be economic actors not tied down by children so women are incentivized to have abortions so women in our society need to have abortions in order to achieve any semblance of equality and that's bad and there's a lot there um no one is saying that they do i don't think anyone's ever framed abortion like that like you should get an abortion so you get that promotion at work or you should get that abortion so like steve will respect you um I, I think Steve's a lot of father. women, uh, women who are infertile, women who have had children, women who have not had children, women who plan to have children, women who never plan to have children, all of them struggle with equality in our society. Yep. You don't gain respect for having children. In fact, I think a lot of men think less of women after they've had children. It's like, oh, your sexy period is over, right? Well, um, that and also they they take it as like, oh, this person has birthed another human, so they're obviously drained and they can't have sex with me and they're ugly and they're well, fat. I, I'm even saying like in their careers, people yeah, who are never going to have too. sex with them, who they interact and with they in the don't, office. And they don't have any more um, push to them and they're so focused on their family and they're distracted mm-hmm. and mom guilt and they have to go to those stupid orchestra concerts. Oh, God, orchestra. Orchestra. Yeah, um, but then there's also plenty of men with children who aren't judged. Um, I, and I, again, there's double standards in our like gender equality in our society. It definitely doesn't exist yet, but I don't think magically that having children makes you considered more equal because men not having children doesn't make them less equal, if that makes sense. Uh, but then finally, not every abortion is a medical procedure. Um, maybe if we want to be like super specific that like, yes, like, abortions are often you know utilized with pills or like with actual medical instruments but there are sometimes pregnancies just self-terminate and the woman doesn't need to do anything and it's an accident sometimes intentional sometimes unintentional but not every abortion is a medical procedure so this is very strange framing to be like accidental abortions would also make a woman equal to man not well thought out what's the final one naomi the wombless male body not standard Abortion patho- pathologizes fertile female bodies. Oh, my God. So this one also is, like, very unexplained, and I had to infer some stuff here. So they're saying in a equal world, men wouldn't get more respect because they didn't have a womb. That we would recognize the goodness and amazing attributes, maybe even the superiority of women who have this incredible ability to reproduce, right? And this seemingly assumes that in our society, we think of men as the default and the ability to reproduce as lesser than or like a strange accessory, like a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu fist, (laughs) right? Do you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Okay. Um, So... 
we're not saying you need to get your uterus removed to have an abortion. Oh my god, that's not the abortion procedure? Yeah, because whether you have children or not, you still probably are going to have your uterus. And I don't know how people's perceptions of being wombless would be influenced by your decision not to have children. It seems irrelevant to this conversation. Um, I, I think that most people assume and think about the sexes in terms of a dichotomy, too. I mean, most biologists will say there's about five sexes based on all the chromosomal differences, and I think we're getting now to a point where people are understanding that there's a number of things that make up sex, you know, from your chromosomes to your hormones to how you express yourself, how, you know, you, 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 your secondary sex characteristics come about. And so it's difficult to say that there's two. But most people still think of man-woman as the defaults of humanity. I don't think people are thinking of this, like, Leonardo da Vinci Vitruvian man diagram as the human standard, right? Like a Ken doll with no genitalia. I think most people are like, whether or not they believe in equality, there are men and there are women. And so it's so strange that they're making this assumption that society is like men is, are the standard and we need to fight against that, when that's not how the majority of society thinks. Is that too far? I can't take you seriously with your Jesus hair. Damn. Uh, abortion doesn't require women to become infertile. Same thing as the womb. Um, you can't tell if someone is infertile by looking at them. You can't just be walking down the street and be like, that person has like the infertility mark of shame on their forehead. That'd be really cool, though. I, I do want sort of like video game stats where you can tell all sorts of things about people. Like just little, down the yeah, like yeah. a little pop up. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then also, like, even outside of Western culture, I think a lot of people treat fertility as something that's special and worthy of respect. Like a lot of tribes, a lot of groups around the world think that, oh, the ability that women have to reproduce is actually really cool and good. And I think it's a very Western perspective to be like, it's universally condemned in our society and we need to fight against it. When in fact, the opposite is true. Often women are treated as more worthy of respect because they have the ability to produce more children. Call me crazy. You're oh my crazy. God. Naomi, are we on the last row of the second yes, page? Yes, we are in the finally document? on the last row. Read the first one. Abortion rights codify women's bodies as designated vessels for contained violence. Yeah. Okay, so we've already kind of covered this. Again, if you make choices for yourself when society is telling you otherwise, I don't really think that's violence. No. Right? Like, if you want to have sex with someone and you enjoy choking and you say, hey, can you lightly choke me during sex? I'll let you know if it's not cool. And they respect your bodily autonomy and they do that. And you have an amazing orgasm. I wouldn't really call that violence. Call me crazy. Some people argue that having sex with a lot of people and hypersexualizing yourself is a form of self-harm. Don't want to dig into that okay. at this juncture. Um, the second thing is, if this is really true, doesn't that make a lot of rights an opportunity to exert violence against a group? Um, right? Like, you're saying... If someone has a right to do something, that then gives other individuals the right to exert violence against them. But that doesn't seem true in most cases. When gay people had the right to marry, that didn't mean socially it was suddenly acceptable to use gay people as vessels for violence. Right? When trans people had the right to use restrooms, that didn't legally mean that all of a sudden it was okay to beat up trans people. Socially, there are still a lot of like very homophobic and transphobic attitudes out there, but legally, those people suddenly had more autonomy in society, and suddenly bigots had less rights to abuse them. 
So I don't understand how this actually operates in a legal framework. I don't know what designated vessels for contained violence means. It's like, take out all your frustrations on that fetus over there in the corner. And then you have to be good the rest of the time. Uh, yeah, so I don't see a bunch of people saying murder babies always. I think that you're going to find practically no one, if not no one, who's like, abortion choice is good because babies suck and we should kill them all. I really just want to take that snippet out and just put it everywhere. That's going in the clip show. <laughs> yeah. Second one, Naomi. Healthcare is humane. Abortion is not. I don't know what standard they're using for this. Um, also, there's a long history of women's healthcare being fucked up and abortion through midwives being one of the only respectful towards women procedures. Um, yeah, if you know that. anything about like modern medical history, there was this long tradition of midwives delivering babies in homes and midwives like practiced basic sanitation and recognized when women were in pain and gave them like medicinal herbs and teas and tinctures to like deal with cramps and agony after and during. Um, and then they moved in the hospitals and male doctors were like, we're going to prop women in the most uncomfortable position imaginable. The only reason why you're not allowed to eat during labor in a hospital is because the doctor doesn't want you pooping on him. Well, also in the like most standard bed setup, you're pushing against gravity in order to deliver your baby. Yeah. And when you give birth with a doula or a midwife, they let you give birth in whatever position you find comfortable. Yeah. And yeah, there's, I don't think there's a single animal that like rolls over on its back to give birth. The amount of tearing that happens in that position is unbelievable. We'll get into tearing, maybe not in this episode, but I got some stuff about tearing Naomi. Oh my God, Naomi. Um, I'm going to read this one because this third one is just so dense. Again, read it fast. I want all the power. No, it. I want the, the words to actually register with people. To the patriarchy who loves your pleasuring but hates your mothering, the capitalist who loves your labor but hates your leave, the imperialists who loves your power but hates your nature, the colonizer who loves your birthright but hates your legacy, abortion is their tool for your control. To embrace your fertility is an act of resistance. Hot. What do you think about that? Um, to embrace your fertility is an act of resistance. I'm going to be a trad wife and have a cottage core lifestyle and pump out children for my hunky man. This is like the argument that like housewives or women that stay home and let their partner go out and make the bread, like be mm-hmm. the breadwinner is a bad thing and that they're lazy. No, no, I'm thinking it's the opposite where you have that meme I keep seeing where it's it's two women, one is supposed to be like the liberal elitist and the other is the conservative wife who's done her duty and the liberal elitist is like, I was a scientist and I studied things and the conservative elite woman is like, I raised five scientists who studied things and it's like women's best power is to pump out men to do things. You haven't seen that? No. These are different circles you that we the stride in. weirdest things. <laughs> Ah, look, when you when you follow a lot of progressive organizations and individuals on Twitter, they retweet a lot of things and make fun of them. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I, I think they're saying to embrace your fertility is an act of resistance against culture that is opposed to you having choices. Um, that said, fertility has been used as an act of violence through things like slavery for many years. Like capitalists like using fertility as a weapon because, hey, it turns out if you have slaves and you have a woman slave, you can use that woman slave to make more baby slaves. slaves. Um, 
yeah, the whole, I, I mentioned this on a prior episode, but we came up with these elaborate frameworks for like how you inherited social hierarchy because white masters love banging their black slaves. And oh no, there's all these children which are half black and half white. Are they going to have rights? No, it's inherited through the mother because the likelihood that a black man is going to have sex with a white woman is fairly low. Um, so that's all cool and good. Um, having control of something doesn't mean you have to use it to. Uh, in fact, it could even mean making the choice to do what society wants, right? Like, just because society wants something to happen in this framework doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Like, I would say society generally wants people to not drink and drive. Society generally wants people to stop at stop signs. Um, people may choose not to, and sometimes it's a safe decision and sometimes it isn't. But in general, we'd probably all be better off if people didn't drink and drive. Does that seem fair? Like, doing the things society wants does not make you, like weak or a non-revolutionary um having oh yeah and i don't even understand the rhetoric presented here um these aren't contrasts and i don't understand why in this phrasing they think patriarchy likes women's pleasure why imperialists love women's power and colonizers love their birthright um it's very poetic and magical but these aren't things i'd associate with them Uh, it's reaching we need to interview this person and dig deep into their psyche because I, you know... Just on this page. Just on this page. Just on this page. We're going to do an episode on each individual response they have to each of these bullet points that we brought up. Uh, What's the last one, Naomi? Violence against powerless humans is patriarchy. Is that covered by both definitions of patriarchy? No. I'm going to assume no. Yeah, because it seems like the wrong word to use here. Yes. It's maybe oppression. Yes. Um, I would also turn that around because forced birth in women who have no power is oppression. Forcing women to risk death is oppression. Forcing 10 years to give birth is oppression, like 10 years in jail. Um, that seemingly would meet the definition of powerless humans um, when you have control over women's autonomy. Um, and then, like... It's the whole, our fetuses, humans, our embryos, even humans. They could resolve this pretty quickly by giving an actual standard to compare it to, but they don't do that until way, way later, and I have serious concerns about that. Okay, so, Naomi, it is an hour and ten minutes in, and we have covered two pages of a 114-page document. I swear to you, my sister... My, my podcast co-host. Yes. Um, it goes much faster moving forward. Okay. But holy cow, is there so much to talk about? Um, yeah, like I had to dig into philosophical concepts I wasn't familiar with. I had to pull articles. I had to pull public polling because they're, they're doing something which is talked about in debate circles. I think the phrase is gish galloping. And gish galloping is where you're trying to win an argument, and so you throw a bunch of arguments that aren't poor that aren't properly articulated at your opponent. And so your opponent now has to defeat like 15 different arguments in order to win the, the, the whole debate. And this is an effective strategy because if they miss a single one of them, you can say, look, they didn't even respond to it. I'm just going to you know, push it through. Some judges don't consider that viable. They're like, you need to actually articulate the claim more and impact for all of these and make it like a coherent part of your narrative. Um, but others are like, no, that's a really compelling thing. And you'll notice a lot of conservative commentators will do this when they throw out a bunch of reasons that aren't well articulated for why you should support one policy or another. And if they actually dug into the evidence for what they're saying, you might start to think about what they're saying and come up with counter arguments and the evidence might not say what they want. But you wouldn't have enough time. 
in a speech and debate argument in order to Well, that's that. in debate. I'm saying if you're listening to like a yeah. podcaster or something say this stuff about government policies you and they throw out 15 apart. reasons it's dumb, you're going to think, oh my God, there's so many reasons to oppose it. Not, oh, each of those is really poorly reasoned. You can and... replay it. You can yeah, yeah, talk yeah. about it. You can process it fully. So again, this is partially why I'm concerned about the rhetoric here because I think it's going to be repackaged and condensed down and made into more accessible forms and people who identify as progressive are going to come across and feel like there may be something to this. I mean, they put all this time and energy into it. Maybe there is a way that the pro-life and progressive movements can be compatible. And there kind of is to the extent that women should have options and we should support women who choose to have children financially so children don't go up in poverty. And the answer is not forcing women to have birth. That, that's just off the table. It, it's not something we want to consider. And we'll dig into all of the reasons that <laughs> they give and all the reasons that's wrong in upcoming episodes. But boy, it's going to take us a while to dig through all of this. I would say the last thing that I need to say about this during this episode is that when looking through this um how would you say it? Zine? Is that how you said zine. it? Zine. Magazine. Zine. Wait, but like, it's a zine. Like, it's spelled like zine. Magazine. Magazine. Anyways. Keep going. <laughs> it looks like it's like a scrapbook. Mm-hmm. It's very haphazardly thrown together, and it looks like 2012 Tumblr threw up in it. Ooh, that's an interesting comparison. I definitely see that. Is that all you had to say? Uh, that's all I had to say. Well, I had one more thing to say. Okay. P is for pals who do stuff together. Oh my god! U is in for this you episode? and me. In is for anywhere, at any time at all, right here in our recording studio. Oh. Welcome back, everyone, to a very special studio. episode of Pundamental Romance, the only pun-based podcast game show. I figured we had some very heady conversations in this episode yeah and, so and that's why worth... you don't finish it with like this no people aren't gonna listen unless they know there's a you know light at the end of the tunnel oh as everyone knows the rules are simple i'm gonna read a description of a made-up movie which is a mashup of two pieces of media at least one romantic in nature and naomi has to guess the name of that fake movie okay if i recall correctly you got two out of four last time i don't even think i got two i think i got zero out of four it was one or two i think you did all right and i, I definitely gave you some credit i think on mama mia and Priya or something like that. So if I, for instance, asked her the name of a film based on a Shakespeare play and comic by Hirsch, where an intrepid boy reporter begins paying a local high school bad boy to date a girl so you can get permission to date her sister and probe her for information on an international opium cartel, the name of that film would be Boy Reporter Paying to Date 1010 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, this isn't going to go very well. Oh, I love this so much. Um, what's funny is I seemingly am operating under the assumption Naomi has seen all these films. No, and that's it's under the assumption that I'm a part of the same generation as you. <laughs> and the whole part of this podcast that makes it unique is that you're bringing the millennial view and I'm bringing the Gen Z view. And my interpretation of that is how can I make my sister suffer for audience's enjoyment? Okay, so here's the first one, Naomi. Okay. This 2004 American romantic comedy drama film, based on a novel trilogy by E.L. James, stars Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore and is set in scenic Oahu, Hawaii. Okay. It follows the story of Henry, a womanizing billionaire who falls for an art teacher named Lucy. When he discovers she has amnesia and forgets him when she falls asleep, he resolves to win her over again every new day. 
This being an Adam Sandler film, there's plenty of gross-out humor, weird racial impressions by Rob Schneider, and some really icky stuff surrounding consent, as Henry is a self-professed dom who demands Lucy submit to increasingly kinky BDSM acts. Naomi, the name of this mashup film is... Fifty Shades of Dates. Very good. I was going to go Fifty Shades of First Dates, but Fifty Shades of Dates oh, will do. I got it! <laughs> ah, that's going to record really well. Second one, Naomi. This 1998 romantic comedy stars Angela Bassett as Stella Payne, a successful 40-year-old stockbroker who's persuaded by her best friend from college to take a well-deserved vacation to Jamaica. As she soaks in the beauty of the island, she encounters a handsome young islander, Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey, who is 20 years her junior. His pursuit of her turns into a blossoming romance that forces Stella to take personal inventory of her life, and she is forced to choose between her career and him when he's called upon by NASA for a dangerous mission to discover a habitable planet humans can colonize to escape the dying earth that her unscrupulous financial dealing has wrought. I have no idea what either of these films are. Matthew McConaughey, astronaut. Stella, retreating on vacation. I have no idea. It is the film's interstellar and how Stella got her groove back, how Interstella got her groove back. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Ah, 1-1, one, one, Naomi. Okay. I think you should get this one. This is pretty recent. You'll the get at least one of them. so bad. How into Stella got their crew back. <laughs> this 2012 film is based on a book by C.S. Lewis and stars Bradley Cooper as Patricio Pat Solitano Jr., a man with bipolar disorder who is released from a psychiatric hospital and moves back in with his parents. Though he is determined to win back his estranged wife, he struggles with hallucinations and becomes increasingly convinced there is a fantasy kingdom in the back of his parents' wardrobe, where the forces of good and evil do battle. In particular, he believes that in exchange for waging war against the wicked Snow Queen, who looks suspiciously like his ex-wife, a mystical all-knowing lion will teach him how to dance and win a local competition. It's a weird plot, but it's directed by David Russell, who's known for spinning complex tales for The Thinking Man. And as a result, this movie won multiple Oscars the year it was released. Naomi, the name of that film is... Okay, so you're talking to me and you're like, Naomi, what is my favorite food? What's my favorite? What's my favorite this? And I'm like, Joel, I have no fucking idea what your favorite food is, but I do know your least favorite movie. And that is... <laughs> Uh, that one movie that you just described. <laughs> oh my god, we just talked about this. I have a bad memory, okay? I'm going to figure this out. Okay, so it was um, Bradley Cooper, and it had that one bitch from... Um... <laughs> You're editing this. Make sure to take that God, out. God, what is it? It's literally the tip of my tongue. This is going to bother me. Give me like two seconds. Pat is looking for a silver lining. Is Silver Light no, it's Narnia and Silver Lining's playbook. So is it Silver Linings of Narnia? Narnia's Silver Light. I don't know how to put I, those together. Silver Lion's playbook. I hate you so much. That's not even the two movies. It's not even the two movies titles. You are awful at this. Okay, I got one last one. I think you'll get this. I only wrote this for the pun. Um <laughs> This 2018 American romantic comedy drama film based on the 2013 novel of the same name and a 1950s comic series stars Constant Wu, who plays a Chinese-American professor who travels to meet her boyfriend's family in Singapore and discovers they are among the richest people in the world to a ridiculous degree. 
Her boyfriend, played by Macaulay Culkin, reprising his character from a 1994 film, is a kind-hearted multi-billionaire who has difficulty bonding with people his own age. They bond as they fight off multiple attempts by bumbling criminals to steal Macaulay's family fortune, which wins her the respect and approval of his parents. This horrible mashup of media <laughs> properties is named what, Naomi? Okay, so... Home Alone with Asians? Because <laughs> it's Crazy Rich Asians. Uh-huh. And it's Home Alone. No. Oh, any Anybody who says Macaulay Culkin, I jumped to Home Alone. Macaulay Culkin was not a billionaire in that film. Now, my, the title of the film I was looking for was Crazy Richie Rich Asians. <laughs> Home Alone with Asians. Uh, are you happy we did this now? Home Alone with Asians. That's going in the clip show. Oh. Now you understand why we needed to follow such a heady conversation with something like this. Uh, individuals listening to us, thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to engage with our horrible content and my uh, mental abuse of my sister. Uh, we will continue to go through this very long manifesto at different points. We'll try to do a couple of them all at once, but it's possible this might be broken apart into a couple of different um, episodes. Uh, please, you know, access the link below to the actual content, the document this call came from, if you're interested, uh, but by no means feel that you should take the arguments as um, coming from a good place and that these were created by individuals or an individual who did not have the support of a much larger organization at their back. Anything else, Naomi? No, I think we're good. The crazy Richie Rich Asians, Naomi. <laughs> we're not going to say it again. Bye, y'all. Have a good week. Thanks for the use of our theme music, which is the song Drop by Ketza. You can find more of their music online at ketza.uk. You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at Date These Guys, or visit our website at datetheseguys.org. If you have questions you'd like us to discuss in the podcast or marriage proposals for either of us, shoot us an email at datetheseguys at gmail.com.